we have been in Matthew's Gospel. We're just working our way um, passage by passage, year by year, through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to pray, and then um, we're going to look at the text. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your presence uh, in this room. I pray that you would make our minds attentive uh, to your living word. And uh, Lord, convict our hearts. Uh, May we be different because of the time we've spent with you in your word this morning. And uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the passage where Jesus takes three of his apostles and he goes up on a mountain and it says this in Matthew 17, 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Peter, James, and John, the apostles, they go up to the mountain with Jesus And there, Jesus is talking with these Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah. And then Jesus' face starts shining as bright as the sun. He's transfigured, he's transformed in front of them. And the apostles are terrified, they fall on their face. And then he says, don't fear. And then they walk down the mountain. We're going to pick it up as they're walking down the mountain. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And let me just pause right here. A number of times in Scripture, Jesus will do a miracle. um, And he will say, don't tell anyone. And you go, well, doesn't he want the word to spread? Doesn't he know anything about marketing? Um, Why wouldn't he have people spread the word? Well, here's the key. He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. You see, they had all kinds of wrong ideas of what the Messiah was going to be. They thought he was going to be a political Messiah or a military Messiah. Uh, Some thought he was just a, a miracle worker. And it didn't make sense until the cross, until he died on the cross and rose from the dead. So he, in essence, he's saying... This is going to make perfect sense through the lens of the cross. Wait until then. Okay? Um, so uh, that's, that's that. Now, let's get back to, uh, to coming down the mountain. And the disciples asked him, Why do the scribes, our teachers, say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now you go, what in the world is going on here? Well, uh, there was a teaching that the scribes had taught that before the Messiah would come, the Old Testament prophet Elijah would make an appearance. Now, they just saw the literal Elijah and Moses on the mountain with Jesus, and they're saying, hey, speaking of Elijah, 
what's the deal with Elijah showing up? Now, let me complicate things even further for you, then we'll hopefully try to clear it up. The last book of your Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. The last chapter of Malachi, in fact, the second to the last verse in the Old Testament, says this. Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So, the Jewish teachers said, you know the Messiah is ready to show up when Elijah comes back and preaches. Now, John the Baptist shows up, and they ask him, are you Elijah? And his answer is, no, I'm not. I am not Elijah. Later on, though, they asked Jesus about John the Baptist, and Jesus in Matthew 11 says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, wait a minute. Is he or isn't he Elijah? Well, John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, yes, he is. Well, how do you reconcile all this? Well, it's very simple. When John was asked, are you Elijah, am I the literal Elijah? Remember, Elijah never died. He was taken to heaven. But he is not actually the Elijah, but he's Elijah-like. So, no, I'm not Elijah, literally, but I, I, Jesus says he is Elijah-like. In fact, it all comes very clear when um, John the Baptist, before he was born, an angel appears to his father and says, and he, John, will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So, was he the literal Elijah? No. But was he Elijah-like? Did he come forth in the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah? Yes. Okay. Now, let me ask another question. When John the Baptist showed up, did he fulfill completely the prophecy that Elijah would come first? In other words, is this fulfilled completely? Now, um, some people say no. There is a future coming of Elijah. In other words, be paying attention, folks. There may be either Elijah or an Elijah-like person on the scene in days ahead. Others say, no, it was completely fulfilled uh, with John the Baptist. And here's, here's the argument. Um, they said, what's the deal with Elijah? Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. So Jesus is speaking in the future tense. He, he will restore all things. But then in verse 12 it says, But I tell you that Elijah has, past tense or aorist tense, has already come. Now, um, some people say, well, see, all he's doing is he's reciting the prophecy. Elijah does come. Yes, Malachi says Elijah does come and he will restore all things. And guess what? That's been fulfilled here in John the Baptist because he's already come. End of matter don't need to worry about any, any future fulfillment. Others say, wait a minute, um, this is in present tense still, or in future tense here. Um, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Um, there's a thing in prophecy uh, known as multiple fulfillments. 
All right? There's this idea, for example, in the book of Daniel. Daniel prophesies that uh, there will be an abomination of desolation dealing with the temple. And in the Old Testament times, there was a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes who went into the Jewish temple and desecrated it. But then when Jesus showed up on the Olivet Discourse, he spoke of the abomination of desolation as still future, even though it already had at least a partial fulfillment in the Old Testament. And uh, then the question is, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, did that completely fulfill that prophecy? Well, others would say, well, some would say yes. Others would say no, because Jesus ties the abomination of desolation to the very end times. So um, students of prophecy say there can be a prophecy given with multiple fulfillments. Now, many people believe that there was the Old Testament prophet Elijah. There was a fulfillment in his second coming in John the Baptist. But there's a future fulfillment where he is still going to come, maybe in your lifetime. Now, a verse that adds support to that view is in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 11, says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. How'd you like that job? If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, who are these two guys? They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Now, if you remember anything about the prophet Elijah, he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for three years it didn't rain. Then he prayed that it would rain, and it rained. This kind of looks Elijah-like. Right? And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Turning water to blood and sending plagues upon the earth. Who does that remind you of? Moses. Right? So, um, there are those. Okay, let me give you three possible interpretations of this. There are those very well-respected scholars who take a much more symbolic view of the book of Revelation, and they say these are not two literal people. These are two representatives of all true gospel proclaimers over the entire church age. Other people go, that's pretty symbolic. This seems pretty specific. Okay? Second view is that um, there will be two literal prophets in the end times who speak powerfully, and they will be Elijah and Moses-like, but not actually Elijah and Moses. Third view is that in the end times, before Jesus returns, God will actually send literally the Moses and the Elijah that lived to this earth as prophets. You go, that's kind of ridiculous. They just showed up on the mountain, remember? They did show up on the mountain. Okay. Now, um, you go, which is the right view? I don't know. 
<laughs> How would I know? <laughs> um, but I'll tell you this. Here's how I'd like to, to, to approach this this morning. If an Elijah-like prophet did show up, how do you think he'd be received in America today? How do you think an Elijah-like prophet would be received in the American church today? Would he be welcomed or would he be mocked and rejected? And most importantly, how would you receive him? Would you embrace and welcome an Elijah slash John the Baptist type prophet today? You know, the first Elijah was persecuted. Remember Jezebel tried to kill him? The second Elijah, John the Baptist, was arrested and beheaded. And Jesus says, just like they treated John the Baptist, they're going to treat me. And then you know what happens to these guys, if you read further? They're killed. But then, they're resurrected in front of everybody. Maybe on national TV. I don't know how, how it's going to work. Okay, um, But, when God sends the final Elijah, I have a sneaking suspicion that he's not going to be any more well-received than he's ever been. Why? Because here's where we are today. 2 Timothy. These are Paul's last words. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, Now, who's to blame here? Is it the false teachers that are all around us? Or is it the people who want the false teachers? Okay, But basically, God says, all right, you don't want to hear the truth? I'll send you plenty of false teachers uh, to, to have your little itchy ears scratched. Okay, In an environment like that, a John the Baptist, Elijah-type prophet would not be accepted. So the question is, if God sent John the Baptist or Elijah today, uh, what would happen to him? Maybe a more important question, how would you even recognize an Elijah-type prophet? Now, the first Elijah, his authority from God was displayed and recognized by miracles. Okay, he, um, remember we talked last week, he went up on the mountain and he had that contest with the false prophets and he said, you guys have your God bring down fire from heaven and they couldn't do it. Then he called on the true God and he sent fire from heaven and he miraculously uh, displayed, God miraculously displayed through Elijah that power. Okay, one of my favorite incidents is once they send uh, 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah and he calls down fire from heaven (laughs) They all turn to ash. So then uh, the king sends a second 50. <laughs> burns them all up. Third group comes, and the commander says, please don't call down fire from heaven, and he spares him. Okay? But uh, Elijah did powerful miracles. Now, something interesting. The second Elijah, John the Baptist, never did one miracle. You say, well, maybe, maybe none were recorded. No, Jesus said in John 
10.41, John did no sign. But people knew he was a prophet. How was the second Elijah recognized? How was his authority from God recognized? Not through miracles. Through what? His message. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three elements of John the Baptist's message, which correspond to the first Elijah's message. Three consistent things that we see in these guys um, that authenticate that their message is from God. So when the true Elijah shows up, or the Elijah-like prophet shows up, you don't reject him. You recognize him. So let's, let's call it this. Three elements of a prophetic message from God. And by prophetic, I don't mean predicting the future. I mean just speaking forcefully in the name of God. All right? Three things. First of all, warning. Both Elijah and John the Baptist were not afraid to warn people about the coming wrath of God. Elijah lived during the time of a wicked king named Ahab and his lovely wife, Jezebel. And Elijah was told by God to warn them. And here's his warning. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Now, um, Ahab had a little bit of repentance. He listened, and there was a little bit of repentance. Then finally he was destroyed. Jezebel, she never repented. She was killed, and guess what? The doggies ate her up. John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he warns with these words. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, hey, welcome to our church. We're so glad you're here. We just want you to feel comfortable, sit back, get a cup of coffee, and we don't want you to to feel put upon at all. We're just so thrilled you're here. No, he said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You bunch of slithering snakes. You ever see a, a nest of snakes? Kind of disgusting. John says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hellfire is coming, and you are going to be thrown into that fire, and the axe is already chopping down the tree. This is not seeker-friendly stuff. This is warning about being thrown into hell for eternity. You know, um, there's no more important job in the world than proclaiming the truth of the gospel. You go, well, does it pay well? It's all right. Is there a lot of status involved? No. Well, isn't there other career options you could go with? Yeah, there's plenty of things you could do. But what, what could be more important 
than warning people that hell is real. And then there's good news. There's a way to get out. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. Nothing is more important. The day you wake up in hell for eternity, you look back and you say, why didn't anybody warn me? Even the church today is preoccupied with everything but the main thing. The cross that saves you from the wrath of God. You see all these gimmicks of how to attract people and draw them in and keep them and has everything to do with nothing but the cross. Um, MacArthur's, 20 years ago, John MacArthur put out a book called Ashamed of the Gospel and he warned about the church growth movement creeping into evangelicalism and he just republished it. And um, basically he says, you got to be kidding. In the name of evangelism, we're hiding the gospel and talking about everything but the gospel in the name of evangelism? And he talked about a, a bunch, of, uh, bunch of newspaper clippings about seeker-driven churches. And he writes this, I once read through a stack of newspapers and magazine articles that highlight a common thread in the user-friendly, your user-friendly churches, the user-friendly phenomenon. These observations from newspaper clippings describe the preaching in user-friendly churches. So, quote, there's no fire and brimstone here, just practical, witty messages. Quote, services at this church have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome, not drive them away. Quote, as with all clergymen, this pastor's answer is God, but he slips him in at the end. And even then, doesn't get heavy. No ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. He doesn't even use the H word. Call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as the old-time religion, but with a third less guilt. The sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. (laughs) They haven't been here. Um, You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hellfire. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It's sophisticated, urbane, and friendly talk. It breaks all the stereotypes. And then the pastor is preaching a very upbeat message. It's a salvationist message. But the idea is not so much being saved from the fires of hell, Rather, it's being saved from the meaninglessness and aimlessness in this life. In other words, it gives you a purpose. It's purpose-driven preaching, right? It gives you a purpose for life, right? It's more of a soft sell. So MacArthur sums it up. So the new rules may be summed up like this. Be uh, clever, informal, positive, brief, friendly, and never, never use the H word. Okay? You know, um, of course, half the church is gone today, but I'm assuming you're going to get this message and give it to friends, right? Oh, yeah, sign me up. Okay. Um, For those who may be listening to this message on the Internet or on, on CD, let me ask you a question. Does the church you regularly attend regularly 
regularly proclaim that eternal damnation is real and that people you know are really going to go there? Does it light a fire under you to be obsessed with the salvation of others? You know, how many people have I talked to who say, well, I attended a certain church for years and I wasn't saved? Not because I resisted the message, but because there was no message. I didn't know to flee from the wrath to come. They never talked about the wrath to come. How can you stay in a bland hellhole? I mean it, literally a hellhole. They think they're doing evangelism, but in the name of evangelism, they don't even address the main issue, the wrath of God and the cross that solves it. So huge amounts of people go, but it's a soft sell. It's inoculating people to the truth of the gospel. And here's the question. When a true John the Baptist or Elijah shows up, they mock him. (laughs) That guy. He doesn't have the sophistication of how to preach the gospel today. Right? He doesn't know how to do it. so, So the evangelical church today is inoculating people against the prophet that God will send. Okay. So, first thing that John the Baptist and Elijah, the first element of their message, is that they are not afraid to warn people about the wrath to come. Second thing, confrontation of sin. Right? Elijah, up on the mountain, with the, the false prophets, the contest up on the mountain, all the people gather They, they gather because it's kind of like the Olympics. It's the Olympics of prophets. This is going to be fun. Right? So he says to the crowd, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Oh, we're not here to have to decide. We're here to see a contest. Okay? But basically, he calls them out on being limpers. Waverers. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. Okay? Split your pants that way. John the Baptist... You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, you know, Pastor, all this talk about hell and damnation and fire and doesn't God love us? Well, well, let's talk about this this blend, this uh, this synthesis of God's love and God's wrath. Okay, everybody knows this verse. For God so loved the world, right? And, and people go, well, what, what do you mean, wrath of God? Do, doesn't God love me? God so loved the world. Now, if we just stopped with those six words, is that six? One, two, three, four, five, six. For God so loved the world, people would go, of course he loves me. What's there not to love? Right? 
But he loves the world, so what does he do? That he gave his only son. Gave doesn't mean just the cute baby in the manger. Gave means sent him to die on a cross. God sent Jesus to die on the cross to endure his wrath on our behalf that whoever believes in him. So you can't stay neutral. You need to appropriate. You need to embrace Christ and what he did for you. And when you do that, you won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. But notice, even the most well-known verse on the love of God assumes that sinners are under the wrath of God apart from the cross. Look at what the last verse of John 3 says. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son, notice that belief results in obedience. So if, if you don't believe in Him and you don't obey Him, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. So you know what this means? If you're sitting here this morning and you are not in Christ, Christ is not your Savior, the wrath of God is upon you. And if you don't trust in Him, His wrath remains on you. Right? Oh yes, He so loves the world that He sends Jesus as our substitute. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not explicitly a follower of Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. Romans 2 says it very well. Let's take a look at verse 5 first. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So picture every non-believer walking around with a wrath tank hanging over their head. And they're storing up more and more and more wrath. Now look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So, the fact that you're still alive and not in hell is a sign of God's kindness. The fact that it's being stored up in a tank and hasn't exploded upon you yet is an element of God's love. But don't take that, I mean, he, that's what the verse is saying, don't take that to mean that you can get away with living apart from Christ. His kindness should lead you to repentance. Then Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, you know why you're an unbeliever? Your mind is set on sin. Oh, I, I was taught evolution growing up, and I have an intellectual problem with evolution and creation, therefore that's why I'm not a Christian. No, it's not. Evolution is an excuse you're holding on to because what you really want is to sin. Well, I was brought up in a legalistic church, and I had a really bad experience, and um, that's why I'm not a believer. No, that's an excuse. The real reason you're not in Christ is your love of your sin. Well, those Christians in church are so hypocritical and it's a smokescreen. If anybody's an unbeliever, the real reason that Scripture reveals is because you love your sin. Quit making excuses for others and for yourself. Now, look at this. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. If you're not a believer, you hate God. You go, I'm not a believer yet, but I don't hate God. Yes, you do. You are hostile to God. Now, let me prove this. If you love God, you should love his law. This is what the psalmist said. Oh, how I love your law. Whatever your commandments are, I love them. It's my meditation all the day. So, if you love God, you'll love his law. Let's go over some of his laws and see if you love them. Okay? Um, Sexual purity law, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Okay? God's law, which you should love, is that he has given a gift of, of sexual pleasure. But it is only to be engaged in within the covenant of male-female marriage. You know, we're in a situation these days where the, war, the, the country's divided over chicken. Right? We can't, even, we can't even get the male-female thing figured out. And now I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, that's horrible, I'm for traditional marriage. That's fine, but do you know that God goes a little deeper than just boys marrying girls? You are to reserve sex for the marriage covenant. And those who say, oh, come on, that is so old-fashioned. You hate God's law. You are in rebellion against your creator. Don't say you love God when you violate his law. Oh, I love God as I sleep with my boyfriend. No, you don't. I love God as I surf pornography. No, you don't. How about this? You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Oh, I love Jesus but I use his name as a swear word. No, you don't. How about just church? You know, the latest statistic, 50% of people don't go to church. And of the other 50% who do, it's once or twice a month. And right now in the Fox Valley, 19% are in church. It's probably lower than that because of vacation. But um, here's what Hebrews says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Well, I have my own church. It's on the golf course, or it's in the woods, or it's at the lake. Wait, how do you obey this, meeting with one another and stirring one another up, off on your own? Oh, come on, that's legalistic. You hate God's law, don't you? You hate God's law. How about this one? Rich young ruler thought he had his act together. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, have you looked through the commandments? Oh yeah, kept them ever ever since I was a little toddler. All right. You, You really think you've kept the law, Jesus says? So okay, here we go. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. So there's love for an unbeliever. 
and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, does Jesus call everybody to give everything away to the poor? No, but he does call you to give everything, to surrender everything to him in principle and then to generously give a portion of that. Many would argue for 10%. Some wouldn't. Uh, regardless, do you love to generously give that which he has given to you? Have you in principle surrendered it all to him? Or are you more like this guy who says, now nah, you're asking for way too much? Right? Or how about this? For although they knew God, this is mankind in general, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Just simply having an attitude of thankfulness for being alive. And then on top of that, living in this country. And then on top of that, having not just one car, but most have two cars. And on top of that, having air conditioning. And on top of that, having McDonald's. And on top of that, having a big screen TV where you can watch the Olympics. And rather than saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank, thank you for this, this phone that can connect to the Internet. And I have all knowledge ever available to the human. It's in the airwaves. Oh, thank you for that. And th thank you for Starbucks. And thank you for... You know what most people do? They walk around grumbling and complaining, and God says, the wrath, my, my wrath is going to come upon you for your stinking, ungrateful attitude. Okay? So, how'd you do on the test there? Are, do you love his law? Now, you know what? When you come to Christ, here's what happens. You're forgiven. Okay? If you're sitting here and you're going, oh, no, I don't. And how can I possibly be forgiven? Turn to Christ. Admit your sin and he forgives you. But you know what else he does? He does give you a love for him and his law. Right? But if you're here today and you say, I have no intention of letting him change my heart so I love him and his laws, then why don't the words, you brood of vipers, apply to you? Why, why wouldn't those words apply to you? Why wouldn't the warning to flee from the wrath of God apply to you? You hate God. You're hostile to God. See, you're not going to hear this very many places, but it's so obvious. Why did Jesus need to die on the cross? To pay for rebels' rebellion against their God. Okay. Now, uh, one last thing. Decision. Both Elijah and John the Baptist called for decision. Another word for that would be repentance. Quit wavering between two opinions. 1 Kings 18.21, If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. It's either one or the other. Make a choice, but don't sit there uh, wavering and staggering and limping between two opinions. And the people did not answer him a word. Okay? John says the same thing. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repent! Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ 
And John goes even further. Don't just turn in your heart. Let's see it produce some fruit in your life. Okay? Now, the good news is, you know, this is a pretty heavy message. No, it's not. Come on. What are you, a bunch of wimps? (laughs) This is not a heavy message because the good news is when you turn, God the Father standing there with his arms wide open like the prodigal son's father. He will receive all who turn to him. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin. It's all forgiven when you turn to him. Okay? Now, let me, let me end with a plea for those of you who are wavering. For those of you who have one foot on the gospel and one foot in the world. Now, you've heard me quote Spurgeon before. And usually you get a a clever line or a paragraph. I'll give you a good dose of Spurgeon here because um, Spurgeon preached a message on Elijah, on Elijah up on the mountain, and and uh, Elijah is basically mocking the people who have a foot in both camps. And he's calling them to make a decision. And here's how Spurgeon deals with this. Okay. Some of them said, now this is the people on the mountain speaking to Elijah. Some of them said, what, prophet? May we not continue to halt between two opinions? We're not desperately irreligious, so we're better than the profane. Certainly we're not thoroughly pious, but at any rate, a little piety, a little holiness, right, uh, is better than none. And the mere profession of it, of of holiness, keeps us decent. Let us try both. How long limp ye between two opinions? The prophet laughs at them, as it were. And is it not true that a man who is neither one thing nor another is in a most absurd position? Methinks even the devil himself must laugh at such a man in scorn. You do not, now this is great, you do not have the pleasure of this world, and you do not have the pleasure of religion either. You have the fears of religion without its hopes. You are afraid to do wrong, yet you have no hope of heaven. You have the duties of religion without the joys. You have to do just as religious people do, yet there is no heart in the matter. You have to sit down and see the table all spread before you, and then you have not power to eat a single morsel of the precious dainties of the gospel. It is just the same with the world. You dare not go into this or that mischief that brings joy to the wicked man's heart, you think of what society would say. What would people think of me if I became too much of a sinner? Right? Ye are half one thing and half the other. You come into the society of the saints, into a church, and try to talk as they talk, but you are like a man who has been taught French uh, in some day school in England. He makes a queer sort of Frenchified English and Englishized French, and everyone laughs at him. The English laugh at him for trying to do it, and the French laugh at him for failing in it. If you spoke your own language, if you just spoke out as a sinner, if you professed to be what you are, you would at least get the respect of one side. 
But now you are rejected by one class and equally rejected by the other. By the way, those of you who haven't made a decision and you think you can fake it in church, people can see right through you. That's what he's saying. You're a Frenchified Englishman. You come into our midst. We cannot receive you. You go amongst worldlings. They reject you too. You are too good for them and too bad for us. Where are you to be put? If there were a purgatory, that would be the place for you, where you might be tossed on the one side into ice and on the other into burning fire, and that forever. But as there is no such place as purgatory, and as you really are a servant of Satan, now come on, Spurgeon, tell it like it is, right? and not a child of God, take heed, take heed how long you stay in a position so absurdly ridiculous At the day of judgment, wavering men will be the scoff and the laughter even of hell. The angels will look down in scorn upon the man who was ashamed to own his master thoroughly, while hell itself will ring with laughter when that grand hypocrite shall come there, that undecided man, they will say, Ah, we have to drink the dregs, but above them there were sweets. You have only the dregs. You dare not go into the riotous, boisterous mirth of our joyful or of our youthful days, and now you have come here with us to drink the same dregs. You have the punishment without the pleasure. Oh, how foolish will even the damned call you to think that you halted between two opinions. What are you waiting for? You know, at least Elijah said, choose. Go full into the world into sin. At least have some fun before you go to hell. Right? Or choose Christ. And you may be persecuted, but you have eternity in the presence of God. Choose this day whom you will serve. If it's Baal, then serve him. If it's your flesh and your sin, choose it. But if it's Christ, embrace him. Embrace Christ. He will receive all who truly turn to him in faith and repentance. You say, well, what should I do? Believe in him. Turn your heart to him. And then I'm going to say, I usually don't get this, I'm going to say this, get baptized, not for salvation, but to show that you're unashamed of Christ and the gospel. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord, thank you for men.